0: Hello everyone, you're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. If you want to own a little bit of Bitcoin, or maybe a lot of Bitcoin, and frankly, who wouldn't? There is a service for doing that in a way that is very easy and does not impact your finances in a noticeable way. And that's called Swan Bitcoin. If you go to SwanBitcoin.com/slash init, you can take a few minutes and set up daily, weekly or monthly buys. You can do it with five dollars a week. You can do it with $1,000 dollars a month, whatever you want. Do it at an amount that you won't notice. and let some time go by, and maybe even forget about Swan Bitcoin for a while. And then you go back to it and you look at your balance and you're like, "Huh, That's a lot of Bitcoin." Go to swanbitcoin.com/init and set it up in less than five minutes. Lima Yevremovich is CEO of Aura, a mental health technology platform. It combines VR tools for exposure therapy, gamified therapeutic exercises, and more, and also includes an app for therapists and case managers to monitor their patients' mental health. We hear a lot about how mental health care is broken in this country, and actually in much of the world for that matter. And Lima understands this at a deeper level than most. She has extensive experience interacting with healthcare providers, the justice system, and insurance companies. And she's using technology to find scalable solutions to mental health that truly save lives and heal families. You can't help but get inspired by Lima and her sense of purpose— A warning is in order, though. The topics we discuss are weighty and include accounts of drug use, severe abuse, and other topics that may not be appropriate for more sensitive or younger listeners. So if that's an issue for you, you should skip this one. So we talk about Aura and how it's used in mental health facilities, how biofeedback is integrated into mental health assessments, how video games can be designed as therapeutic exercises, And how mental health professionals are increasingly using data to better inform insurance companies and healthcare providers and themselves about the needs of their patients. We talk about how technology is a scale enabler for mental health services so that they can reach more people. Boundaries and how critical boundaries are for a healthy and happy life and how virtual technology can help people find and develop strong boundaries. We talk about conservatorship, incarceration, and the homelessness crisis in the US and Los Angeles in particular. I have to mention before we move on that there is some breaking news regarding this episode. Firstly, the woman who you're going to hear discussed named Amanda has, since we recorded this show, passed away. I have no details on that. You're welcome to do your own research. The other thing worth mentioning is since we recorded this, the controversy surrounding Britney Spears and her conservatorship has really exploded into the mainstream. But Lima does offer a valuable perspective on that. And so I hope this discussion will move the conversation forward in a constructive manner. So here we go Lima Yavramovich.
1: So, my name is Lima Yavramovich. I'm the founder of Aura, a digital health startup that really focuses on allowing mental health therapists and clinicians to treat mental health like physical health. So what this means is that we use data to allow the therapist to see how a patient is feeling. It's not just based off of self-reporting, it's based off of a very intricate Evaluation of the overall patient, so that we don't have a one-size-fits-all treatment.
0: So you're you're collecting data through an app, which is Aura, or yes. Aura, sorry,
1: Aura. No, no problem. Yeah,
0: no. So how does how does it work? How does Aura work?
1: Yeah. So the way that it works is we have two products, um, and then the patient portal, and the patient portal is where all of the data actually goes. So it it's it's where the mental health professionals are able to log in and see what's going on with each patient. The first product is a virtual reality product. So while you're at a treatment center or while you're doing a therapy session in person with the mental health professional, what ends up happening is they use a belt and they are able to track your biofeedback. So heart rate, distress levels, we can also detect craving levels. If they use virtual reality and they put a drug of choice in front of you, Um, Obviously, it's not ethical to put meth in front of you. (laughs) But if you put virtual meth, (laughs) then it becomes uh, virtual reality exposure therapy. And I think the uh, the best, most well-known case and when we've used it is um, we've had a patient. Her name is Amanda. I discovered her on the YouTube channel Soft White Underbelly. And um, she was homeless on Skid Row, had an extreme amount of trauma from a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of drug abuse, um, and some mental health, some severe mental health issues that she had been struggling with. We put her in a long-term program Mm -hmm. and we, we've also been using virtual reality with her. And what that does is it allows her to be exposed to her triggers. So we have a virtual skid row, virtual homeless environment. Her therapist is also able to put her drug of choice in front of her, which is crack, and um, measure how she's doing. So instead of just releasing patients when they say they're okay, or when insurance just cuts out, um, what we do is we are able to collect that data and report it to insurance companies and say, hey, this patient isn't ready to leave. They're still craving if you relieve, release them. They're still in high distress, so they can't apply the lessons that they're being taught. Right. And when you go to treatment, when you go to a rehab, it's not necessarily that you go and you're like, I have a problem, and you come out 30 days later fixed. Instead of suppressing your emotions, instead of suppressing those feelings of not being good enough, not having a high self worth, not having boundaries in place to say no, whether it's no to sex or no to drugs or whatever the case may be. Addicts do not have boundaries in place and it's just because they don't have self worth. And so that's what they're teaching you in these facilities is how to use the skills instead of drugs, instead of alcohol, instead of food restriction or overeating or gambling or whatever. Whatever the case is.
0: But they're they're teaching you in the facility and then they're like, okay, now go out and apply it unsupervised. Yeah, it's so like, it's right like now an it's impossible just theory. task.
1: It's only theory. When you go in yeah. it, there's no actual work being done. It would mostly be like, Dave, imagine being stressed out. Right, I'm right, going to pretend right. to be your drug dealer. And patients will kind of crack up because we're going to practice saying no. Yeah. That's not really effective because they don't really take it seriously. You're you're teaching someone how to be calm while they're calm. And then when they go out and they have a fight or flight reaction because they see something that reminds them of something else that triggers them and then they're in distress and they're used to having, I'm anxious, a bunch of people run up to them and figure out. And now they get released. I'm anxious and not, no one's here. Yeah. The only thing that I know that works for this feeling when I'm alone is my drug of choice or restricting food or overeating or right. gambling or whatever the case is.
0: Well, also, I mean, it's all contextual. It's like you have a sensory immersion in some environment with tons of cues, like sensory cues for your your habit or your your addiction, right? And those cues aren't available to you in therapy. There's mm-hmm. The sensory cues aren't there. Like I was reading a long, long time ago, somebody was talking about how the smell of a bar as an alcoholic is like this triggering event. Like in therapy, you just don't have that mm-hmm. sensory cue. So, okay, obviously smell is not virtual yet, but you can create these sensory cues in virtual reality, find that boundary of what the person can handle and then treat it. That's absolutely fascinating.
1: There are ways that you can integrate smell into virtual reality. There are companies that do that and do a very good job of it. Um, So by integrating smell and then for example if I put you outside and I turn on a fan yeah the experience gets becomes even more immersive and more realistic because you can feel the wind you feel like you're outside mm. obviously our systems we're not putting fans and and all of these additional senses because we want to make it affordable to the treatment center so that we can scale it but as these other aspects being able to generate smell into a system, get more affordable, will definitely be integrating them. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. so it makes a lot of sense with
0: VR being so, like consumer VR being so good for video and audio, just start there.
1: Mm -hmm. And then there's also the aspect of right now when you go to a treatment, what you can expect is a TV room, a smoking area. Sometimes some facilities will have a pool, but those are much, much more expensive than facilities that don't. There's not really much to do. So, you have your day programs where you've got group, you've got one on one therapy, you've got, at some facilities, you don't get one on one therapy if they have too many patients. But then you also have classes that teach you why you behave the way that you do and why you respond the way that you do. And then in the evening, the therapists go home and the patients just have the TV room and they can. Smoke outside, and that's pretty much all that's available, but by treatment centers implementing virtual reality, the way that we have it set up with partnering facilities is you have a virtual reality setup where the therapist can do one-on-one sessions with a patient. but if that patient has done three sessions with the therapist, there's a VR room they can sign out and it's separate of the therapy room hmm. and so, they can continue to work on, because we also have gamified therapies. We do yeah. virtual reality exposure therapy that is not available to patients while they're by themselves. That requires a, a therapist to do it ethically and monitor how the patient's doing while they're triggered. But we've got a lot of um, gamified versions of like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, Mm -hmm. a lot of guided imagery, a lot of like meditation and breathing and stress and anxiety management. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden these patients are able to play games in the facilities, have a virtual escape from these treatment centers that they're kind of stuck in. And then at the same time, the more repetition you have of doing something when you're triggered in this way or responding to this or doing that, we're implanting a memory in your head. So you remember it, and then you become better at it without the virtual reality. So there's a lot of studies and research that prove this.
0: And you can probably also gather data on how they're performing in the gamified experience and just monitor. So
1: all of that goes Mm -hmm. into the patient portal to detect how high of a risk level these patients have. We also monitor how often they're applying their tools. So if you're going and you're playing these virtual games, that means that you're doing therapy without even realizing you're mm. doing therapy after therapy. So after hours. So those patients are less likely to go out and relapse because instead of freaking out or being stressed out or whatever the case is, they're actually applying. And the yep. second product that we have is the application. Okay. And the application basically does exactly what The virtual reality does, which is monitor the patients throughout the day. Again, more than just self-reporting. So we take into account biofeedback that feeds into the application. We also do voice analysis, so biomarkers in the voice. Mm. And we also do take into account self-reporting because if you tell me I'm going to kill myself in the app, I'm not going to be like, well, my data says you're not. We're not obviously not going right. to challenge what a patient is right. saying, but if a patient is reporting otherwise that they're okay and we're detecting that they're not, that's a huge red flag. And if we're detecting that a patient's not okay, but they're not doing the work, they're not doing the therapies, they're missing appointments, that also goes into determining how much of a risk they are to relapse or that they're not ready to leave. Or if they've left and we continue to monitor them on the app, the clinician is alerted and they're able to intervene before it's too late, not after they've relapsed or something has happened.
2: Yeah.
0: That's amazing. The the whole thing, it's like one of these ideas when you hear it, it just makes perfect sense. You don't have to question like, what's the value? It's it's time has come. Well, but so how did, so, okay, I happen to know a little bit about your story, but it's a very interesting story. So how did you arrive at this
1: Growing up, um, our father, my sisters, and I have two younger sisters. They're identical twins. He was very abusive to us. And my mom basically ran away when I was about five years old and they were three. And they didn't have any memory of the trauma at all. And I I remembered everything. So I was a very troubled kid, if Mm. you would say that. Nothing unique. I was the same as any other kid that just hung out with the wrong kids at school and got in trouble and you know the standard story but my sisters were the perfect kids like they never had any issues never had any problems were in all on all the sports teams never touched drugs star athletes straight a's they came to la in their early 20s to be actresses my mom had this rule you can't leave unless you graduate from college you have to get a university degree that's what she told them so Throughout their college years, they weren't partying or doing anything. Uh, One of them worked three jobs. The other one worked two jobs. They took summer classes. They got their degree in um, kinesiology in two years. So they they took as many classes as they could. And they also saved up money to move to L.A. So when they first came here, they were living in a hotel and they could afford to. So they weren't struggling by any means because they had invested in the prospects and so they were very successful when they were when they were here. They were living purely off of income they were making as actresses. Mm. And then suddenly they began to have mental health issues and that's where the biggest problem started with them. And for me in the meantime on the other side, I had a lot of things that I had struggled with growing up and I had a close group of friends that weren't exactly the best people in the world, but they were like what I would consider family. Mm -hmm. One of the people I idolized so much and I told myself I wanna be just like this person. And he just became so miserable and he started taking drugs and abusing them and just fell apart and I kind of feel like I got to see what my future would have been if I had gone down the same route that he went down. That was my biggest wake up call and, and it doesn't sound that significant unless you were actually there. It was very traumatizing, Um, the things that I saw happen to this person. And especially when I was following very closely in their footsteps, Mm -hmm. um, it really opened my eyes out. Like It felt like a gift of I got to see my future if I continue on this path. And I just turned my life around. I put my phone in the toilet because I told myself I didn't want to talk to those people anymore because they, again, were not doing the most ethical things in their lives. Of course, five minutes later, it was in a bowl of rice and I was praying over it like, please, I made a mistake. Um, but it was the best thing that I ever did. I moved. I came to LA to see my sisters. I just had a fresh start and I decided that I was going to take the lessons that I had learned in the path that I was going and I was so fortunate to turn my life around um, and teach other future Limas out there not to make those same mistakes, and so the way that I was going to do that was using technology to scale mental health care, because I was always so angry, and I didn't really have tools, and my drug of choice was really high-risk behavior. I always did things I never really cared about what happened to me. I didn't care about who I hung out with or whatever the case was, and even though I wasn't so much addicted to an actual drug or alcohol. It was the fact that I just didn't have self-worth and I thought I had confidence, but I actually had a gigantic ego. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned the difference between confidence and an ego. I think Mm -hmm. that was my biggest lesson. When that happened, I learned that I actually didn't have confidence, which means I didn't have any self-worth. And that's why I was hanging out with people that... I wouldn't say I'm better than them. Um, I don't believe in being better than anyone, but I would say that that they were not making good decisions. And and the reason that I was hanging out with people like that was because I didn't have value of myself. And that is the core fundamental factor of people that have a problem with addiction or even people that are controlling. Like if you're controlling of your girlfriend or of, of your wife or your husband or whatever it is like it's because you're not in control of yourself because you don't have you don't feel good enough so you need to control that other person Mm -hmm. so there's so many ways to self-medicate that people don't realize it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol it literally is two things that can save your life and can fix you and it's having boundaries and being happy with yourself and that's it and as soon as you have those two things You don't need to have a drink to loosen up and talk to people when you're hanging out with friends or you don't need to be a social smoker or you don't need to go shopping when you don't have the money to pay for a new outfit. You know, you don't need to find a way to make yourself feel better because you're content. People that are always chasing happiness don't realize that happiness is not a real thing to chase because It's a feeling that lasts in a moment. Like if I won the lottery and if I ate a chocolate cake, I would be happy. Mm -hmm. Like I'd be happy with a chocolate cake. I'd be happy with a lottery. Like the happiness is going to fade. It doesn't matter what you do. But the point is, if you're content with yourself, you have the satisfaction. You don't have to wait until I get there. Obviously, Aura's a small business. It's a startup, which does not make me rich. It doesn't mean that I'm living in a mansion and I'm, I have everything going for me. It means that I have a really good idea and I'm very, very passionate about it. And I'm willing to eat ramen noodles and do whatever it takes to make it happen. Yeah. But I'm not going to be happy when it's big and it's in everybody's home. Right. I'm content with the fact that I get to work towards making sure everyone has access to it and that I get to build it up.
0: Wise words. Thank you. Yeah. No, but the boundary thing is interesting. So if one of the keys to happiness is boundaries, um, some of us are blessed with a sense of boundaries. Others have to develop a sense of boundaries. Like how do you, where do you find your boundaries?
1: It really starts out in, in childhood. So people think that abuse is just, if you beat your child or Hmm. if, you know, sexual abuse or whatever, um, abuse can be too much control or it can be not enough control. So setting healthy boundaries for a child is going to set up their future for them to make decisions when you're not around. Mm -hmm. And that happens when if you don't give a kid structure and if you don't say no to the kid and they're just doing whatever they want as a teenager and into adulthood, they're going to not understand those things and they're just going to do whatever they want and end up hurting themselves. Mm. But if you take too much control from a kid and you just say no to everything, that kid is going to be very codependent on people kind of controlling and they're going to break away from that. So kind of having that middle line, the worst thing that you can do is not allow the kid to say no for themselves. So everyone's like the terrible twos, they don't want to do anything. That's actually really good. If a kid is saying no to you, you should be so happy. If a kid is constantly saying yes, that's scary because you want them to think for themselves and you want them to feel like they can depend on you. That's why you set boundaries for them. You don't let them do whatever they want because they need to feel they have somebody that knows and is in control when they need it, but they also have that middle line where they can make decisions for themselves. So if you don't want to eat right now and you're saying, no, I'm going to respect your decision and you can eat later, yeah. um, instead of forcing you, that's really where they start. But if people don't have those boundaries, what ends up happening is they feel lesser than because they feel like they can't make decisions for themselves. Mm. And that when they don't know how to say no, if they're uncomfortable with a situation and they go with it anyway, then afterwards they feel bad about the result of that situation and they didn't want it to happen. But because they didn't voice their concerns, the other person didn't understand or one thing led to another or whatever the case is or the person pushed something onto them and they accepted it. It's not like they held it. So a lot of times, like for example, with sexual abuse, because I deal with this a lot with the people that I work with, Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm not a therapist, but... I've done case management for patients. I have a really strong relationship with a lot of different treatment centers. The girl from Soft White Underbelly, Amanda, that I've been helping, I've been doing her case management and aftercare planning. So I'm very familiar with what is the best place to place somebody depending on what they voiced out to me. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I hear the most in terms of sexual abuse with women is um, they didn't feel comfortable with the situation, They didn't know how to say no. It happened even though like somebody keeps pushing and trying to make advances on them and then they just give in because again, they don't have these boundaries. And then they feel guilty like it's my fault because they didn't hold a gun to my head. Right. But I didn't want to do it. So is it rape? Is it not, but then it's not rape. It's my fault because even though I didn't want to do it, I still did it because he didn't force me to. I still did it. And so then they end up in this conflict of I hate myself because all of these guys can just come in and out and I'm just like nothing. Like I just don't have any choice. And so you need to empower these people of like, yeah, you do have a choice. And so then goes into drug addiction, which is I just want to bury this deep down inside me and not think about how I feel about myself So I'm going to use this drug of choice or I'm going to restrict food or whatever. And a lot of times with eating disorders, sexual abuse is very common. They just stop eating or they overeat. Mm -hmm. It's really important to feel like you have that ability to say and the confidence to say no, whether it's for drugs, whether it's whatever the case is, that's really at the core. But like you can't do that if you don't have if you don't have any self-worth because it's like, I'm making that person feel bad. If I say no to them, what are they gonna think of me? That means that your self-worth is dependent on what that person thinks of you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So if you have no self-worth, you have no boundaries. But what is really important to understand is you don't owe anybody your time. You don't owe anybody really anything unless you want to. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't even owe somebody a phone call if you don't want to talk to them, like mm-hmm. those, that those are boundaries, not answering the phone when you don't feel like talking is a boundary. Yeah. But some people just don't have any. And that's, that's the core.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, especially in hyper media society, everybody's mm-hmm. competing for your attention. And mm-hmm. it's a revelation to realize that you, you get to choose what you give attention to, no matter how much A company or somebody on social media is screaming at you to click on this or touch this or do this you just don't have to Mm -hmm. but they're using every tool at their disposal to try to get you to change your behavior i I never thought about it in terms of boundaries i always thought of it in terms of like resisting marketing messages but it really is like it's before resistance because resistance is just like an in the moment behavior but the question is like where do you draw the boundary and then like how did you arrive at the conception of those boundaries like you know slowing down and thinking through, like, what types of things do I do? How do I define myself? It also occurs to me that some of the struggle with bringing an impulsive behavior is like having a clear understanding of the, the consequences of it in the moment. You know, you just forget about the consequences in the moment that you that you were tempted to do an impulsive behavior. Mm-hmm. Maybe a virtual reality could also somehow bring that reality, that Hypothetical reality of what will happen if you cross a boundary into your sensory reality.
1: Absolutely. So virtual reality allows for you to implement certain things that might have severe consequences in the real world, Mm -hmm. but do those things in a safe zone with a mental health professional. And so a lot of the content that we do with Aura's virtual clinic is heavily focused on impulsive behaviors Mm -hmm. and retraining your brain to think differently and make different decisions
0: yeah no but so because you mentioned like putting a drug of choice in front of somebody but maybe even being in vr and looking at a mirror in vr and seeing yourself like 15 years from now if you never if you never stop being an addict making that real for people like this is this is how bad things could turn out like they used to do this thing with kids called scared straight i don't know if you saw that Yeah, yeah yeah so it's like that but virtual you know
1: Definitely, definitely. No, it's so all of our content is co developed by clinical psychologists. Yeah. So we really take the therapies that they currently use and we just breathe life into them because we work off of evidence based practice. Mm -hmm. But that's definitely a really cool concept. So we can talk about it with the clinicians and if they think it's something that might be effective, we can build it in.
0: So, Amanda. Yes. So tell us about Amanda.
1: Okay. Mark interviewed me on his t- channel, Softweight Underbelly. And
0: That's a great interview. He interviewed you twice?
1: He's interviewed me maybe four, four or five times.
0: It's a great, great interview. Thank you. How many has like millions of views or something like that? It's yeah, he's like he's thing. really,
1: um, I mean, he's really talented with what he does. Yeah. And he really is, he doesn't need to do it. And the barrier to entry for what he does is extremely high because... The people that he works with are really difficult to interview. Or, He's told me a lot of stories that is not my place to share, but it, it's really, really, really tough mm. and extremely brave what he deals with. Mm. Um, and he continues to do it because it's really an empathy builder. For people that don't know, Mark interviews people anywhere from um, a homeless man, interview with a prostitute, interview with a KKK member, interview with a meth addict. And so for him, it's the ability. He always asks, tell me about your childhood. And then they're like, oh, my childhood was normal. And then as soon as they go into it, you're listening and you're like, oh my God, that's not normal. It's something that a lot of people need to hear because our society is so focused on me canceling everybody, judging everyone. Um, How am I going to get ahead? It's not really a team effort nobody's united in anything it's so easy to walk by and judge people and mm-hmm. especially homeless people and you know in LA with the crisis and everybody's you've got tents pitched out in Beverly Hills like you've got multi-million dollar mansions on the water in Santa Monica and Venice and you have permanent structures built in front of them with these tents and two by fours Oh yeah, it's unbelievable so so it's really easy to be kind of fed up with the homelessness crisis yeah when you live here and you don't feel like you can take your kids to the park you can't take there was mattresses on venice beach like on the beach mattresses and tents so you can't you don't feel safe to take your family anywhere and so the general consensus of the people living here is we pay a lot in taxes we we don't feel safe to even go into our backyards because we've got tents pitched there. And a lot of these people, like there's been cases where people overdose in the tents and they're dead for weeks and that no one knows this. Yeah. So it's not a situation where these people are able to make decisions for themselves. And I think the general consensus of the people living here is that they're fed up with the homelessness situation. So it's really easy to just, walk by someone asking for change and just be fed up and act like they don't exist. But my mom always stressed to us that even a smile is charity. So if you don't have change, just acknowledging them and smiling and saying that, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have any change right now is like a gift to them. Mark's channel takes it to the next level because what he does is he generates empathy for other people by being able to show behind what they look like or what their position in life is and um, what their beliefs are of why they're like this and how they got there. How they got there. exactly. Yeah, it's fascinating. So in, in most cases, it's tragic and it's really difficult to hear, but it helps people not judge each other. So um, going back to what you asked about Amanda, Mark and I, after the first interview he did with me, we thought it would be pretty cool to be able to fundraise and cover somebody's expenses and give somebody a chance at getting better. And so in the case with Amanda, we decided that we would fundraise for a year so that insurance wouldn't just cut her off after a month. We would show how it should actually be done so we can petition insurance companies Hmm. um, to make this standard of care for everyone. And Mark suggested Amanda. And at that time I had watched a lot of his videos, but I didn't know who Amanda was. So I said, okay, Mark, I'm going to check out Amanda and I'll get back to you. And I called him back after seeing her videos because she had gotten really bad, um, since her first video to her last interview, you can't understand what she's saying. She was in really, really bad condition. Mm. She had severe drug induced schizophrenia. We didn't know if it was drug-induced or not, but after looking at her medical record, and this is public information, so I can talk about it. She had been diagnosed while she was intoxicated, and she didn't want help. She she had made her decision, so Mark shared a story with me. On top of the fact that her interviews were very difficult to understand what was going on with her, um, that he had tried to take her to treatment, and she tried to kick the windows out of his car, And he had to release her back onto the street. So he's tried to help her several times. And she fought him trying to get away and not go to rehab. And on top of that, in the times that her father has tried, she had been to rehab seven times, relapsed every time. Now rehabs and treatment centers were denying her care because they said she was too far gone and they couldn't help her. Based on that, I called Mark back and I said, Hey, Mark, do you have anyone else that might want to do this? <laughs> because this is going to be really challenging and Amanda doesn't want help. So it's going to take a lot of creativity to get her into treatment um, and to actually have her heal because you're forcing someone to go that doesn't want to go. Yeah. And on top of that, the forcing part is going to be really challenging right. um, because it takes a lot to prove that someone is not in a mental state to make their own decisions where you have to make it for them in order for the state to take away the rights of that person to make their own decisions. It takes a lot of evidence, a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of energy Mm -hmm. period, Mm -hmm. lack of sleep. So Mark told me that there are people that are willing, but that if I'm so confident in what I'm doing and that I can help, and that I believe that I can help anyone that I should be able to help Amanda. Wow. But He didn't say it like that. <laughs> but <laughs> the he, gauntlet down. He, he said, if you can help Amanda, you can help anyone. Right. And you're going to give people so much inspiration that someone that was so severe was able to heal. Then anyone can be healed. Right. After that conversation with Mark pumping me up, I was like, okay, Mark. I'm gonna take it. So we went in that direction, and what ended up happening was Amanda had attacked her father with, with a pipe, and um, Mark instructed him to call the police. And so when I had access to Amanda, she was severely beaten, violently raped, had lost all of her teeth in the front of her face, and she was very malnourished and very underweight. And so at that point, she was in jail, And typically what they would do is they would either release her. So release her back on the street because this wasn't the first time that she was arrested. But because she had attacked her father with a weapon, um, they considered that to be a felony. And so they were offering three years in jail for someone with a mental illness. And that is like the most mind-blowing thing to me because a lot of times our system focuses on punishment over treatment. And it just becomes a revolving door.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so again, this was not the first time Amanda had been arrested. And three years in jail for someone that's really, really struggling, you know, as a regular case, it would have easily been like another person just thrown into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah, Amanda, she's probably never coming
0: back out out from that.
1: I mean, if she, yeah. if she does come back, she's going to go back into jail. She's going right. to be... Go back on the streets like you're not helping. You're not helping the situation, the root cause. Yeah. What ends up happening is, I went to court and I had um, petitioned for Amanda to. I was trying to get what's called an LPS conservatorship, and what that does is, uh, it allows for the conservator to make all of the decisions on behalf of the conservatee, which in this case, the conservatee would be Amanda and the conservator should preferably be a family member, the court is more likely to grant a family member than a stranger or mm-hmm. a friend of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, the conservator would be her father. And for her court case, so I had all the paperwork set up. I had a um, like all the documents and everything. I just needed her lawyer to file them, and she had been granted a public defender. And the issue with that is that and this is not to put down public defenders because they're super overwhelmed with their workload. They get paid the same amount, no matter how many cases they have. Their job is to turn out cases as quickly as possible. So they're not really working in in your interest. So I had provided the public defender with all of her documents to file for the conservatorship and he didn't file them. Um, again, he's overloaded with clients. And so I brought all of the documents and instead I went to court and I requested a court order. There was a couple, a few times we had to go to court Mm -hmm. for that to happen. So it wasn't like, it was a process, Mm -hmm. but we got the court order. And so the court agreed that instead of three years in jail, that she could have one year in treatment. Um, If she completed treatment for one year, then she served her time. If she left treatment, then she would basically have to serve three years in jail. And so in order to really drive that home for Amanda, we didn't take her straight out of jail. We let her stay in jail for a little bit to set up everything for her and do the planning. And I spoke to her a couple of times like, hey, if you leave, you're going to end up back here. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Like, you want to get out of jail... If we take you out of jail, you're gonna come back here. Like, make sure you understand how awful and how much you don't like this environment so that you don't return. So, we really, really wanted her to understand that her actions will have consequences. Being on the street is not an option when she leaves, and she'll end up back in jail. So, that was like a constant thing that I was really focused on her understanding.
0: Well, that's the big step is like getting her to want to. Want to be in treatment,
1: and that's the that's the point that a lot of people don't understand. So they think that when you take someone's freedom away to make decisions, when that person's making bad decisions, you don't really have a choice. Like for example, if I try to kill you, Dave, um, (laughs) then I'm probably going to go to jail if I succeed or if it's an attempted murder. Because I tried to hurt another person. But if I try to kill myself, I'll be held for 72 hours and released. But Mm. that is another person that I'm trying to kill. So somebody that is trying to hurt another person, even if that person is themselves, should not be making those decisions and be running wild and free. And people will never really truly understand the significance unless they have a family member that's really struggling. Mm. So... My uh, my my messages <laughs> have been blowing up about Britney Spears' conservatorship. I know that you mentioned to me that you didn't know anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I actually okay. didn't know anything about it until I got like a thousand emails about oh it. Oh my
0: God, when did this happen?
1: Um, is this so recent? This is, so, um, there's like a, a documentary, quote unquote. It's not uh, really a documentary. I would call it a Samir campaign against the family. It talks about the details of Britney Spears' conservatorship and there's a free Britney movement. And based on that, a lot of people try to attempt to do a free Amanda movement against me. Um, What people don't understand is, number one, that documentary does not interview the family. You don't know if Britney has a mental health diagnosis. That's private information. You don't actually know the intricacies of what's going on. And everything in that, like, I hate to call it a documentary because it's not. A documentary is providing you facts and information and science, and that's all speculation. It's literally like a glorified, you know, TMZ video that's being released and hyped up. Mm. And so some people should not be making their own decisions. And one of the things that were highlighted was, you know, she had the incident where she shaved her head. She had multiple incidents where she was going out and she lost her children because of that. And there were other incidents that happened while she was going out that were caught on camera that were inappropriate for mother or someone with a sound state of mental health. Um, And there was a lot of alleged alcohol and drug abuse that was going on in the tabloids at that time. And that resulted in her losing custody of her kids. So for her father to put a conservatorship on her was to get her career back up to the top where it was. She started working again after that. She got her kids back after that. And at the end of the day, we've become a society where it's guilty until proven innocent. And if I say that Dave did something, then Dave's entire life is going to fall apart, but no one has to prove it. And so it's really important that we, the people that are just the viewers, are allowing the courts to decide with all of the information that we can't see if this is an appropriate decision for that person or if not. And the same thing with Amanda. I wouldn't be able to get the court order or if, there was, if I were able to get the conservatorship, I wouldn't be able to get it if the court didn't review everything, speak to the doctors, speak to, and it's not like you can just pay someone off, because multiple people have to make those decisions, and multiple people have to evaluate and agree, and that conservatorship is reviewed on a re, on a regular basis. It's not like a forever thing. Mm-hmm. People with limited information and assumptions, we need to give that control back to the courts and to the families and respect people's privacy. And so, back to the situation with Amanda, Um, what ended up happening was we got the court order, we put her in treatment, we did an interview with her on day 28. So, she had spent two months in jail, day 28 of treatment, we interviewed her. Mm -hmm. And that interview the whole time, and mind you, she had been clean for about three months at that time, but she had only been, she had only done 28 days of treatment. Mm -hmm. In that with, interview. With Aura?
0: <clears throat> or just uh, under we just your put her into
1: a program okay, at that okay, point. Okay. So we had put her into a program. You can't really do virtual reality with someone straight like with, with Amanda's case. So the therapists, they have the ability to like really track how you're feeling and all of that. Mm-hmm. But in Amanda's case, like when you have someone with a severe mental illness or someone that's struggling a lot, the first few weeks they're really detoxing and they're really feeling bad and so on day 28 we did an interview with amanda and we hadn't put her in virtual reality at that time because there was no need to it was way too early to we can monitor a patient but we don't need to trigger her when she's already craving a lot she's already talking about how much she's craving sure so um throughout the entire interview she was talking about how much she was craving crack and how much she misses it but she knows that it's bad for her and you know she knows that she shouldn't do it again but she can't stop thinking about it so that was the majority of the interview and that's typically when we release patients but amanda also had two months to detox before that in jail most patients just get in and out that was a monumental piece in my my opinion because it really demonstrates to insurance companies the relapse rate is 90 percent. you're covering 30 days of treatment Yeah, it's expensive to pay for, but if you pay for a longer stay, these patients will not relapse and you'll save money in the long run. And that's what I really am working on documenting with Amanda's case. Mm. Um, So now Amanda has been 255 days sober. We just filmed an interview with her. She is such a superstar. So while I was at the treatment center... She noticed that there was a new patient and she walked up and she was like, oh, are you new here? I'm Amanda. I just wanted you to know that if you need anything, you can always come to me. She wants to be a certified medical assistant. She said that she wants to help people and um, she went into a lot of details about why. Um, She has a lot of goals. She doesn't think about drugs anymore. She said that she went back and she watched her older videos on Mark's channel And that she was in tears um, when she was talking to me about it. She said she never wants to go back to that. She can't believe that that was her and that she's come so far. It's really been a complete 180 for her and a a huge blessing. And the real reason for it is because we were able to, number one, take her out of her environment. Mm -hmm. So once rock bottom becomes jail or a psych hospital all of a sudden, you and you're only going up from there, you're still being treated with more respect than you would be treated on the street. Mm -hmm. So you're slowly getting back your self-worth. And so distancing, so 30 days in treatment, my life is still skid row, homeless, abuse, all of that, because those are the memories that are closest to me. Mm -hmm. But having Amanda away for 255 days, you know, like seven months, it's hard for her to relate to that person from before 7 months ago because the norm of her life has changed so much. Yeah. She's constantly she's constantly respected. She's constantly making friends. The the staff loves her. So the fact that she has people like that in in her life, the fact that she calls me often just to check on me, so to see how I'm doing. Wow. And um
0: it's like she has so much self-worth and confidence. She actually has a little bit to give out to others.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The fact that she's going around to people and she's trying to help help p- new patients. Yeah. Um, there's been actually a couple times, and a few um, therapists have shared this with me and also some of the patients at the facility she's at, that um, patients have wanted to leave early and just give up on themselves. And she stepped in and, and said, like, why would you do that? And even though the patients advised her not to do this because they didn't want other people to judge her, she will go around showing other patients her videos to show them how bad she was and that they can do it. Like stick around and you can get so much better. Mm -hmm. Um, So not only does she have the confidence to cheer people on, but she can own up to where she was and she's proud of how far she's come. Mm -hmm. And exactly what you said, the fact that she feels like she can add value to other people, it's a huge deal. Yeah. Um,
0: I guess what you were saying with the courts and and trusting the process more and the fact that even if you are in a psych hospital, you're getting more respect than on the streets. It's in conflict, I think, with this, this idea, since all of the psych hospitals were closed down, that people should be free, right? There were like horror stories back then, like... You know, Nurse Ratchet and everything. And so now the pendulum has swung so that you have entire tent cities of people. You can be free. You don't have to, you know, there's nobody that's going to tell you what to do. The pendulum has swung so far. And I I feel the same way as you. It's almost like we have to find a middle way. Obviously, we we can't have abuse in psych hospitals um, and hold people against their will when they shouldn't be there. But I mean, how do you determine that? It's really tough. That's right?
1: exactly that's exactly going back to what we talked about earlier about healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. The tents that are put on on the sidewalks, like they're treated like private residents. So if you hear screaming or yelling or whatever going on in there, police officers will not st- step inside. This is really? what I was told from from a police officer. Oh my goodness! They will not go inside because number one, it's super common. They hear it all the time. Number two, they're treated like private residents, so you can't go in without a warrant. So you literally have people being discovered dead in these or there's constant raves or a lot of drug exchanges. I used to volunteer on Skid Row often at the food kitchen there. And my mentality was, oh my God, and this was a while ago, like 2014 Mm -hmm. when the homelessness situation was just in downtown. Mm -hmm. So it was Skid Row and... I think the population right now is 66,000 on Skid Row. I had my birthday party there. I had like a day where we, all my friends came and we served food. So like I was a huge, huge supporter of how do we resolve this issue early on. But before I would volunteer there, I thought, oh, those people probably don't know where to get help. That's why Skid Row exists, because they end up in these situations and they just don't know where to find help. When I started volunteering, I realized that there, so Skid Row is like a square block. Mm -hmm. And on each corner are massive, massive shelters and missions that are just dedicated to serving food and all of that. I used to volunteer at the LA mission. We would have so much food, so much extra food because so few people would come inside Mm. that we would end up serving seconds and thirds to the same people that were there we had very little people that would come in and then you see like because they have massive windows you'll see all the people outside like starving and super skinny and just falling apart but they refuse to come in and the reason that they refuse to come in is because they've all given up on themselves they also offer rehabilitation programs in these missions but it's not mandated and then they also offer programs that you can go to yeah and they do have people that sign up so i used to be a part of that as well and i they had graduations and all of that and it's incredible because they reunite people with their families after they've been homeless for so long yeah the majority of people don't come in they've given up on themselves and they think so for women on skid row when you first Now, I don't know how it is all over L.A. because, again, the situation spread out. But when I was volunteering there, there was a 100% chance of rape in the first 24 hours if you're a homeless woman on skid row. And so being in that environment, having the first 24 hours being super traumatic for you, and then being told, oh, you can come in and sign up for a program or you can eat a meal— Those people don't want to eat a meal. They just feel like no one can help me.
0: But so why? Okay, so obviously we had the closure of psych hospitals, etc. But 10 years ago, there was not a homeless crisis to this extent. Obviously, there were homeless people, but not to this extent. This is Mm -hmm. an explosion of it. So everybody has a personal story. But overall why did this happen now i mean some people try to look at it and say we're going to build more housing it's like that's not the issue you yeah, know what i mean like there yeah. was not an issue before now there is it's i'm not a religious person but i want to use the word spiritual like it's a really it's like a it's a crisis of of boundaries like you said but like wh- why at a cultural or societal level is there a crisis of boundaries
1: because most of these people weren't locked up before they so were. if you think about what happened... They weren't or were? They were. So, they were. You, so okay, okay this is... 10 years ago, is, they were? This is what essentially happened, okay? okay? So back in the day, mm-hmm. you have mental institutions, and there's a lot of abuse there. And again, understand that the, a lot of abuse came from misunderstanding mental health. So people think electrotherapy, um, people are possessed. We need to do exorcisms on them. We need to go in there and take out a part of their brain. Like there was a very big lack of understanding Mm -hmm. when all of the severe abuse and the scary mental health facilities and people didn't really think that you could heal or you could function if you had a mental illness. So it was basically like jail for mental health. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of abuse happened there. And in no way, shape or form am I advocating to have that system brought back. Sure, There's been a lot of advances in the way we think about mental health and the respect that's given to people with mental health issues. But the problem began when we started shutting down mental institutions. Mm-hmm. We we used those funds to build more prisons and prisons were privatized. So um, I have to check the stats again. But the last time I checked, roughly about 60% of people in the prison system were in for drug-related or substance use Mm disorder-related incidents. Mm -hmm. So about 20% of people incarcerated have severe mental illness. Roughly, again, about 60% have a diagnosed mental illness. So it it becomes this whole thing of treatment over punishment, but there's really no place to treat them because these institutions were shut down and most of the funding is going into the prison system. But then what happens is when we're scooping everybody up and now our prison systems are overflowing, so now where are we going to put these people that we need to incarcerate? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: What happens is this whole prison reform thing starts to just blow up in 2014 and we start to release nonviolent offenders but we don't provide support right so it becomes this revolving door and so these people can't get jobs it's very hard for them. they don't have an education or they have those mental health diagnoses but they don't have like access to mental health care and then it just erupts and a lot of people that end up homeless, have a mental health condition so and even if it's something very light like anxiety or depression Mm -hmm. um, it will blow up if you're homeless because Mm -hmm. all of those things start to get amplified because you don't have access to anything not having access to a shower or a proper place to use the bathroom like is so dehumanizing that's where it ends up being a situation where our homelessness crisis is just erupting because we're just not providing people with resources. And so majority of the homelessness crisis, majority of the mental health crisis is a lack of access to care. There's too many people that need the resources and not enough resources. And that type of attention is very costly because it's extremely exhausting. It's um, very, very long hours. Mm -hmm. So... It takes a lot to help people like that, and that's really where Aura comes into play is being able to automate a lot of the things, being able to have a platform that provides support and allows you to have a microscope over which patients are the highest risk and need the most one-on-one attention, whereas other patients can benefit from just the access to resources or access to group, group therapy.
0: That's an awesome little yeah. ending. Where can we find you online?
1: You can check out our website at meetora.io. We also have support for families. So we have a resources page on our website that kind of goes into what you can do in terms of getting a conservatorship. So doing what we did for Amanda, how you can do it for your family. And we also have a little bit of information on the process in which we did it. So my goal is Really use Amanda's story as a template to help other people implement it in their own lives, but the problem is it's very expensive. So mm. it becomes a level of how much you can afford to cover in terms of treatment. So even if you were to get the conservatorship, you're probably going to be paying upwards to like three or four, five or hundred thousand dollars for the year of treatment. Oh my goodness! Um, that's not really affordable f- for the standard family. My goal is to get that petition, so it's on change.org. And so we do have a petition, if you just look up, Lima Yevramovich, my name. And so that's to mandate that insurance covers a minimum of a year. So really getting insurance companies to treat mental health like physical health so that families don't have to pay out of pocket. So if you can, if you do have a family member that's willing to go, then they'll have access to care. If you don't have a family member that wants the help, On our resources page, we break down how we did it for Amanda, how you can do it with your family member. And again, I'm not a lawyer. We just had a public defender working with us. And I know that I'm very knowledgeable about the space, so I was able to pull a lot of strings. But my goal is that I can help you also be knowledgeable about the space so you can pull those same strings that I pulled. And then again, the petition is really to get insurance companies to cover those costs so that families don't have to worry about how they're going to get the money to pay for that person's health. Um, so that's that's the most important thing for me.
0: Yeah. And you have an Instagram
1: Yeah, my account. Instagram is at Lima from Aura. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. And then we also have um, Meet Aura is the Instagram for the company. Mm-hmm. So that's all of the details if you want to see. Like we filmed um, Amanda using the virtual reality with her therapist because a lot of people are trying to think of How in the world do you integrate VR into therapy? How would it be used in a facility using our technology? Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of other facilities that are getting ready to sign up this year. And it's just, uh, it's us being able to grow our team enough to support more treatment centers. So that's what I'm working on.
0: Well, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.daveburnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.